Good evening, dear listeners. Due to work, I have been delayed getting home tonight. And so we will begin the show without me here. To start with, we will have Casting the Runes by British ghost story expert M.R. James, followed by episode 5 of the Magnus Archives. Hopefully that will buy enough time for me to return home and then we can talk about some of the stuff that happened, as well as uh, informing you about Mr. James. Thank you to everyone for listening, and uh, we'll see you in about an hour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James Reader's Note In the following text, a number of dates and names are missing. These are represented in the reading by the word blank. End of Reader's Note Casting the Runes April 15th, 190 blank Dear Sir, I am requested by the Council of the association to return to you the draft of a paper on the truth of alchemy which you have been good enough to offer to read at our forthcoming meeting and to inform you that the council do not see their way to including it in the programme i am yours faithfully blank secretary april the eighteenth dear sir I am sorry to say that my engagements do not permit of my affording you an interview on the subject of your proposed paper, nor do our laws allow of your discussing the matter with a committee of our council, as you suggest. Please allow me to assure you that the fullest consideration was given to the draft which you submitted, and that it was not declined without having been referred to the judgment of a most competent authority. No personal question, it can hardly be necessary for me to add, can have had the slightest influence on the decision of the Council. Believe me, Ut Supra. April the 20th. The Secretary of the blank, Association begs respectfully to inform Mr. Carswell that it is impossible for him to communicate the name 
of any person or persons to whom the draft of Mr. Carswell's paper may have been submitted, and further desires to intimate that he cannot undertake to reply to any further letters on this subject. "'And who is Mr. Carswell?' inquired the secretary's wife. She had called at his office, and, perhaps unwarrantably, had picked up the last of these three letters, which the typist had just brought in. "'Why, my dear, just at present Mr. Carswell is a very angry man. But I don't know much about him otherwise, except that he is a person of wealth, his address is Lufford Abbey, Warwickshire, and he's an alchemist, apparently, and wants to tell us all about it. And that's about all, except that I don't want to meet him for the next week or two. Now, if you're ready to leave this place, I am. What have you been doing to make him angry? asked Mrs. Secretary. The usual thing, my dear, the usual thing. He sent in a draft of a paper he wanted to read at the next meeting, and we referred it to Edward Dunning, almost the only man in England who knows about these things, and he said it was perfectly hopeless. So we declined it. So Carswell has been pelting me with letters ever since. The last thing he wanted was the name of the man we referred his nonsense to. You saw my answer to that. But don't you say anything about it, for goodness sake. I should think not, indeed. Did I ever do such a thing? I do hope, though, he won't get to know that it was poor Mr. Dunning. Poor Mr. Dunning! I don't know why you call him that. He's a very happy man, is Dunning. Lots of hobbies, and a comfortable home, and all his time to himself. I only meant that I should be sorry for him if this man got hold of his name, and came and bothered him. Oh, ah, yes, I dare say he would be poor Mr. Dunning then. The secretary and his wife were lunching out, and the friends to whose house they were bound were Warwickshire people, so Mrs. Secretary had already settled it in her own mind that she would question them judiciously about Mr. Carswell. But she was saved the trouble of leading up to the subject, for the hostess said to the host, before many minutes had passed, "'I saw the abbot of Lufford this morning.' The host whistled. "'Did you?' What in the world brings him up to town? Goodness knows. He was coming out of the British Museum gate as I drove past. It was not unnatural that Mrs. Secretary should inquire whether this was a real abbot who was being spoken of. Oh, no, my dear, only a neighbour of ours in the country who bought Lufford Abbey a few years ago. His real name is Carswell. Is he a friend of yours? asked Mr. Secretary, with a private wink to his wife. The question let loose a torrent of declamation. There was really nothing to be said for Mr. Carswell. Nobody knew what he did with himself. His servants were a horrible set of people. He had invented a new religion for himself, and practised, no one could tell what, appalling rites. He was very easily offended, and never forgave anybody. He had a dreadful face, so the lady insisted, her husband somewhat demurring. He never did a kind action, and whatever influence he did exert was mischievous. "'Do the poor man justice, dear,' the husband interrupted. "'You forget the treat he gave the school-children.' "'Forget it, indeed. But I'm glad you mentioned it, because it gives an idea of the man. Now, Florence, listen to this. The first winter he was at Lufford, this delightful neighbour of ours, 
wrote to the clergyman of his parish, he's not ours, but we know him very well, and offered to show the school-children some magic lantern slides. He said he had some new kinds which he thought would interest them. Well, the clergyman was rather surprised, because Mr. Carswell had shown himself inclined to be unpleasant to the children, complaining of their trespassing or something of the sort. But of course he accepted, and the evening was fixed, and our friend went himself to see that everything went right. He said he never had been so thankful for anything as that his own children were all prevented from being there. They were at a children's party as our house, as a matter of fact. Because this Mr. Carswell had evidently set out with the intention of frightening these poor village children out of their wits, and I do believe if he had been allowed to go on he would actually have done so. He began with some comparatively mild things. Red Riding Hood was one, and even then Mr. Farrer said the wolf was so dreadful that several of the smaller children had to be taken out. And he said Mr. Carswell began the story by producing a noise like a wolf howling in the distance, which was the most gruesome thing he had ever heard. All the slides he showed, Mr. Farrer said, were most clever. They were absolutely realistic, and where he had got them, or how he worked them, he could not imagine. Well, the show went on, and the stories kept on becoming a little more terrifying each time, and the children were mesmerized into complete silence. At last he produced a series which represented a little boy passing through his own park, Lufford, I mean, in the evening. Every child in the room could recognize the place from the pictures, and this poor boy was followed, and at last pursued and overtaken, and either torn to pieces or somehow made away with, by a horrible hopping creature in white, which you saw first dodging about among the trees, and gradually it appeared more and more plainly. Mr. Farrer said it gave him one of the worst nightmares he ever remembered, and what it must have meant to the children doesn't bear thinking of. Of course, this was too much, and he spoke very sharply indeed to Mr. Carswell, and said it couldn't go on. All he said was, "'Oh, you think it's time to bring our little show to an end and send them home to their beds? Very well.' And then, if you please, he switched on another slide which showed a great mass of snakes and centipedes and disgusting creatures with wings, and somehow or other he made it seem as if they were climbing out of the picture and getting in amongst the audience, and this was accompanied by a sort of dry rustling noise which sent the children nearly mad, and of course they stampeded. A good many of them were rather hurting getting out of the room, and I don't suppose one of them closed an eye that night. There was the most dreadful trouble in the village afterwards. Of course the mothers threw a good part of the blame on poor Mr. Farrer, and if they could have got past the gates, I believe the fathers would have broken every window in the abbey. Well, now, that's Mr. Carswell, that's the abbot of Lufford, my dear, and you can imagine how we covet his society. Yes, I think he has all the possibilities of a distinguished criminal, has Carswell, said the host. I should be sorry for anyone who got into his bad books. Is he the man, or am I mixing him up with someone else? asked the secretary, who for some minutes had been wearing the frown of the man who is trying to recollect something. Is he the man who brought out a history of witchcraft some time back, ten years or more? That's the man. Do you remember the reviews of it? Certainly I do, and what's equally to the point, I knew the author of the most incisive of the lot, 
So did you. You must remember John Harrington. He was at John's in our time. Oh, very well, indeed. Though I don't think I saw or heard anything of him between the time I went down and the day I read the account of the inquest on him. Inquest? said one of the ladies. What has happened to him? Why, what happened was that he fell out of a tree and broke his neck. But the puzzle was, what could have induced him to get up there? It was a mysterious business, I must say. He was this man, not an athletic fellow, was he? And with no eccentric twist about him that was ever noticed, walking home along a country road late in the evening, no tramps about, well known and liked in the place, and he suddenly begins to run like mad, loses his hat and stick, and finally shins up a tree, quite a difficult tree, growing in the hedgerow. A dead branch gives way, and he comes down with it, and breaks his neck, and there he's found next morning, with the most dreadful face of fear on him, that could be imagined. It was pretty evident, of course, that he had been chased by something, and people talked of savage dogs, and beasts escaped out of menageries, but there was nothing to be made of that. That was in eighty-nine, and I believe his brother Henry, whom I remember as well at Cambridge, but you probably don't, has been trying to get on the track of an explanation ever since. He, of course, insists there was malice in it, but I don't know. It's difficult to see how it could have come in. After a time the talk reverted to the history of witchcraft. "'Did you ever look into it?' asked the host. "'Yes, I did,' said the secretary. "'I went so far as to read it. "'Was it as bad as it was made out to be?' "'Oh, in point of style and form, quite hopeless. "'It deserved all the pulverizing it got. "'But besides that, it was an evil book. "'The man believed every word of what he was saying, "'and I'm very much mistaken if he hadn't tried the greater part of his recipes.' Well, I only remember Harrington's review of it, and I must say, if I'd been the author, it would have quenched my literary ambition for good. I should never have held up my head again. It hasn't had that effect in the present case. But come, it's half-past three. I must be off. On the way home, the secretary's wife said, I do hope that horrible man won't find out that Mr. Dunning had anything to do with the rejection of his paper. I don't think there's much chance of that, said the secretary. Dunning won't mention it himself, for these matters are confidential, and none of us will for the same reason. Carswell won't know his name, for Dunning hasn't published anything on the same subject yet. The only danger is that Carswell might find out, if he was to ask the British Museum people who was in the habit of consulting alchemical manuscripts. I can't very well tell them not to mention Dunning, can I? It would set them talking at once. Let's hope it won't occur to him. However, Mr. Carswell was an astute man. This much is in the way of prologue. On an evening rather later in the same week, Mr. Edward Dunning was returning from the British Museum, where he had been engaged in research, to the comfortable house in a suburb where he lived alone, tended by two excellent women who had been long with him. There is nothing to be added by way of description of him to what we have heard already. Let us follow him as he takes his sober course homewards. A train took him to within a mile or two of his house, and an electric tram a stage farther. The line ended at a point some three hundred yards from his front door. He had had enough of reading when he got into the car, 
and indeed the light was not such as to allow him to do more than study the advertisements on the panes of glass that faced him as he sat. As was not unnatural, the advertisements in this particular line of cars were objects of his frequent contemplation, and with the possible exception of the brilliant and convincing dialogue between Mr. Lamplew and an eminent K.C. on the subject of pyretic saline, none of them afforded much scope to his imagination. I'm wrong. There was one at the corner of the car farthest from him, which did not seem familiar. It was in blue letters on a yellow ground, and all that he could read of it was a name, John Harrington, and something like a date. It could be of no interest to him to know more, but, for all that, as the car emptied, he was just curious enough to move along the seat until he could read it well. He felt to a slight extent repaid for his trouble. The advertisement was not of the usual type. It ran thus, In memory of John Harrington, F.S.A., of the Laurels, Ashbrook, died September 18th, 1889. Three months were allowed. The car stopped. Mr. Dunning, still contemplating the blue letters on the yellow ground, had to be stimulated to rise by a word from the conductor. I beg your pardon, he said. I was looking at that advertisement. It's a very odd one, isn't it? The conductor read it slowly. Well, my word, he said. I've never seen that one before. Well, that is a cure, ain't it? Someone been up to their jokes here, I should think. He got out a duster and applied it not without saliva, to the pane, and then to the outside. Now, he said, returning, that ain't no transfer. Seems to me as if it was regular in the glass. What I mean in the substance, as you might say. Don't you think so, sir? Mr. Dunning examined it, and rubbed it with his glove, and agreed. Who looks after these advertisements, and gives leave for them to be put up? I wish you would inquire. I will just take a note of the words. At this moment there came a call from the driver. "'Look alive, George. Time's up.' "'All right, all right. There's something else what's up at this end. You come and look at this here glass.' "'What's gone with the glass?' said the driver, approaching. "'Well, and who's Arrington? What's it all about?' "'I was just asking who was responsible for putting the advertisements up in your cars, and saying it would be as well to make some inquiry about this one.' "'Well, sir,' That's all done at the company's office, that work is. It's our Mr. Timms, I believe, looks into that. When we put up tonight, I'll leave word, and perhaps I'll be able to tell you tomorrow if you happen to be coming this way. This was all that passed that evening. Mr. Dunning did just go to the trouble of looking up Ashbrook, and found that it was in Warwickshire. Next day he went to town again. The car, it was the same car, was too full in the morning to allow of his getting a word with the conductor. He could only be sure that the curious advertisement had been made away with. The close of the day brought a further element of mystery into the transaction. He had missed the tram, or else preferred walking home, but at a rather late hour, while he was at work in his study, one of the maids came to say that two men from the tramways was very anxious to speak to him. This was a reminder of the advertisement which he had, he says, nearly forgotten. He had the men in, they were the conductor and driver of the car, and when the matter of refreshment had been attended to, asked what Mr. Timms had had to say about the advertisement. Well, sir, 
"'That's what we took the liberty to step round about,' said the conductor. "'Mr. Timms, he give William here the rough side of his tongue about that. "'According to him, there weren't no advertisement of that description sent in, "'nor ordered, nor paid for, nor put up, nor nothing, "'let alone not being there, and we was playing the fool taking up his time. "'Well, I says, if that's the case, all I ask of you, Mr. Timms, I says, "'is to take and look at it for yourself, I says. "'Of course, if it ain't there, I says, you may take and call me what you like.' "'Right,' he says, I will.' and we went straight off. Now I'll leave it to you, sir. If that ad, as we term em, with Arrington on it, weren't as plain as ever you see anything, blue letters on yellow glass, and as I says at the time, and you borne me out, regular in the glass, because, if you remember, you recollect of me swapping it with my duster. To be sure I do, quite clearly. Well? You may say well, I don't think. Mr. Timms, he gets in that car with a light, no, he told William to hold the light outside. Now, he says, where's your precious ad, what we've heard so much about? Here it is, I says, Mr. Timms. And I laid my hand on it. The conductor paused. Well, said Mr. Dunny, it was gone, I suppose. Broken? Broke? Not it. There weren't, if you'll believe me, no more trace of them letters, blue letters they was, on that piece of glass than, well, it's no good me talking, I never seed such a thing. I leave it to William here, if uh, But there, as I says, where's the benefit in me going on about it? And what did Mr. Timms say? Why, he did what I give him leave to. Called us pretty much anything he liked. And I don't know as I blame him so much, neither. But what we thought William and me did was, as we seen you take down a bit of a note about that, well, that lettering. I certainly did that, and I have it now. Did you wish me to speak to Mr. Timms myself? and show it to him. Was that what you came in about? There, didn't I say as much? said William. Deal with a gent if you can get on the track of one. That's my word. Now perhaps, George, you'll allow as I ain't took you very far wrong tonight. Very well, William, very well. No need for you to go on as if you'd had to frogs march me here. I come quiet, didn't I? All the same for that. We hadn't ought to take up your time this way, sir. But if it so happened— you could find time to step round to the company office in the morning and tell Mr. Timms what you've seen for yourself, we should lay on for a very high obligation to you for the trouble. You see, it ain't being called, well, one thing or another, as we mind, but if they got it into their head at the office, as we've seen things as weren't there, well, one thing leads to another, and where we should be a twelve months hence, well, you can understand what I mean. Amid further elucidation of the proposition, George, conducted by William, left the room. The incredulity of Mr. Timms, who had a nodding acquaintance with Mr. Dunning, was greatly modified on the following day by what the latter could tell and show him, and any bad mark that might have been attached to the names of William and George was not suffered to remain on the company's books, but explanation there was none. Mr. Dunning's interest in the matter was kept alive by an incident of the following afternoon, he was walking from his club to the train, and he noticed, some way ahead, a man with a handful of leaflets, such as are distributed to passers-by by agents of enterprising firms. This agent had not chosen a very crowded street for his operations. In fact, Mr. Dunning did not see him get rid of a single leaflet before he himself reached the spot. One was thrust into his hand as he passed. The hand that gave it touched his, and he experienced a sort of little shock as it did so. 
it seemed unnaturally rough and hot. He looked in passing at the giver, but the impression he got was so unclear that, however much he tried to reckon it up subsequently, nothing would come. He was walking quickly, and as he went on glanced at the paper. It was a blue one. The name of Harrington, in large capitals, caught his eye. He stopped, startled, and felt for his glasses. The next instant the leaflet was twitched out of his hand by a man who hurried past, and was irrecoverably gone. He ran back a few paces, but where was the passer-by, and where the distributor? It was in a somewhat pensive frame of mind that Mr. Dunning passed on the following day into the select manuscript room of the British Museum, and filled up tickets for Harley 3586 and some other volumes. After a few minutes they were brought to him, and he was settling the one he wanted first upon the desk, when he thought he heard his own name whispered behind him. He turned round hastily, and in doing so brushed his little portfolio of loose papers onto the floor. He saw no one he recognised, except one of the staff in charge of the room, who nodded to him, and he proceeded to pick up his papers. He thought he had them all, and was turning to begin work, when a stout gentleman at the table behind him, who was just rising to leave, and had collected his own belongings, touched him on the shoulder, saying, "'May I give you this? I think it should be yours.' and handed him a missing choir. "'It is mine, thank you,' said Mr. Dunning. In another moment the man had left the room. Upon finishing his work for the afternoon, Mr. Dunning had some conversation with the assistant in charge, and took occasion to ask who the stout gentleman was. "'Oh, he's a man named Carswell,' said the assistant. "'He was asking me a week ago who were the great authorities on alchemy, and of course I told him you were the only one in the country.' I'll see if I can catch him. He'd like to meet you, I'm sure. For heaven's sake, don't dream of it, said Mr. Dunning. I'm particularly anxious to avoid him. Oh, very well, said the assistant. He doesn't come here often. I dare say you won't meet him. More than once on the way home that day, Mr. Dunning confessed to himself that he did not look forward with his usual cheerfulness to a solitary evening. It seemed to him that... Something ill-defined and impalpable had stepped in between him and his fellow-men, had taken him in charge, as it were. He wanted to sit close up to his neighbours in the train and in the tram, but as luck would have it, both train and car were markedly empty. The conductor, George, was thoughtful, and appeared to be absorbed in calculations as to the number of passengers. On arriving at his house, he found Dr. Watson, his medical man, on his doorstep. "'I've had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning. Both your servants order combat. In fact, I've had to send them to the nursing home.' "'Good heavens! What's the matter?' "'It's uh, something like tomaine poisoning, I should think. You've not suffered yourself, I can see, or you wouldn't be walking about. I think they'll pull through all right.' "'Dear, dear! Have you any idea what brought it on?' Well, they tell me they brought some shellfish from a hawker at their dinner-time. It's odd. I've made some inquiries, but I can't find that any hawker has been to other houses in the street. I couldn't send word to you. They won't be back for a bit yet. You come and dine with me to-night, anyhow, and we can make arrangements for going on. Eight o'clock. Don't be too anxious. 
the solitary evening was thus obviated, at the expense of some distress and inconvenience, it is true. Mr. Dunning spent the time pleasantly enough with the doctor, a rather recent settler, and returned to his lonely home at about eleven-thirty. The night he passed is not one on which he looks back with any satisfaction. He was in bed, and the light was out. He was wondering if the charwoman would come early enough to get him hot water next morning, when he heard the unmistakable sound of his study door opening. No step followed it on the passage floor, but the sound must mean mischief, for he knew that he had shut the door that evening after putting his papers away in his desk. It was rather shame than courage that induced him to slip out into the passage and lean over the banister in his nightgown, listening. No light was visible, no further sound came, only a gust of warm or even hot air played for an instant round his shins. He went back, and decided to lock himself into his room. There was more unpleasantness, however. Either an economical suburban company had decided that their light would not be required in the small hours, and had stopped working, or else something was wrong with the meter. The effect was in any case that the electric light was off. The obvious course was to find a match, and also to consult his watch. He might as well know how many hours of discomfort awaited him. So he put his hand into the well-known nook under the pillow. Only it did not get so far. What he touched was, according to his account, a mouth with teeth and with hair about it, and he declares not the mouth of a human being. I do not think it is any use to guess what he said or did, but he was in a spare room with the door locked and his ear to it before he was clearly conscious again, and there he spent the rest of a most miserable night, looking every moment for some fumbling at the door. But nothing came. The venturing back to his own room in the morning was attended with many listenings and quiverings. The door stood open, fortunately, and the blinds were up. The servants had been out of the house before the hour of drawing them down. There was, to be short, no trace of an inhabitant. The watch, too, was in its usual place. Nothing was disturbed. Only the wardrobe door had swung open, in accordance with its confirmed habit. A ring at the back door now announced the charwoman, who had been ordered the night before, and nerved Mr. Dunning, after letting her in, to continue his search in other parts of the house. It was equally fruitless. The day, thus begun, went on dismally enough. He dared not go to the museum. In spite of what the assistant had said, Carswell might turn up there, and Dunning felt that he could not cope with a probably hostile stranger. His own house was odious. He hated sponging on the doctor. He spent some little time in a call at the nursing home, where he was slightly cheered by a good report of his housekeeper and maid. Towards lunchtime he betook himself to his club, again experiencing a gleam of satisfaction at seeing the secretary of the association. At luncheon Dunning told his friend the more material of his woes, but could not bring himself to speak of those that weighed most heavily on his spirits. "'My poor dear man,' said the secretary, what an upset! Look here, we're alone at home, absolutely. You must put up with us. 
yes no excuse send your things in this afternoon dunning was unable to stand out he was in truth becoming acutely anxious as the hours went on as to what that night might have waiting for him he was almost happy as he hurried home to pack up his friends when they had time to take stock of him were rather shocked at his lawn appearance and did their best to keep him up to the mark not altogether without success but when the two men were smoking alone later dunning became dull again suddenly he said gayton i believe that alchemist man knows it was i who got his paper rejected gayton whistled what makes you think that he said dunning told of his conversation with the museum assistant and gayton could only agree that the guess seemed likely to be correct not that i care much dunning went on only it might be a nuisance if we were to meet he's a bad-tempered party i imagine conversation dropped again gayton became more and more strongly impressed with the desolateness that came over dunning's face and bearing and finally though with a considerable effort he asked him point-blank whether something serious was not bothering him dunning gave an exclamation of relief i was perishing to get it off my mind he said do you know anything about a man named john harrington gayton was thoroughly startled and at the moment could only ask why then the complete story of dunning's experiences came out what had happened in the tram-car in his own house and in the street the troubling of spirit that had crept over him and still held him and he ended with the question he had begun with gayton was at a loss how to answer him to tell the story of harrington's end would perhaps be right only dunning was in a nervous state the story was a grim one and he could not help asking himself whether there were not a connecting link between these two cases in the person of carswell it was a difficult concession for a scientific man but it could be eased by the phrase hypnotic suggestion in the end he decided that his answer to-night should be guarded he would talk the situation over with his wife so he said that he had known harrington at cambridge and believed he had died suddenly in eighteen eighty nine adding a few details about the man and his published work he did talk over the matter with mrs gayton and as he had anticipated she leapt at once to the conclusion which had been hovering before him it was she who reminded him of the surviving brother henry harrington and she also who suggested that he might be got hold of by means of their hosts of the day before he might be a hopeless crank objected gayton that could be ascertained from the bennets who knew him mrs gayton retorted and she undertook to see the bennets the very next day it is not necessary to tell in further detail the steps by which henry harrington and dunning were brought together the next scene that does require to be narrated is a conversation that took place between the two dunning had told harrington of the strange ways in which the dead man's name had been brought before him and had said something besides of his own subsequent experiences then he had asked if harrington was disposed in return to recall any of the circumstances connected with his brother's death harrington's surprise at what he heard can be imagined but his reply was readily given 
John, he said, was in a very odd state, undeniably, from time to time, during some weeks before, though not immediately before, the catastrophe. There were several things. The principal notion he had was that he thought he was being followed. No doubt he was an impressionable man, but uh, he never had had such fancies as this before. I cannot get it out of my mind that there was ill-will at work, and what you tell me about yourself reminds me very much of my brother. Can you think of any possible connecting link? There is just one that has been taking shape vaguely in my mind. I've been told that your brother reviewed a book very severely, not long before he died, and just lately I have happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book in a way he would resent. Don't tell me the man was called Carswell. Why not? That is exactly his name. Henry Harrington leant back. That is final to my mind. Now, I must explain further. From something he said, I feel sure that my brother John was beginning to believe, very much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. I want to tell you what seems to me to have a bearing on the situation. My brother was a great musician, and used to run up to concerts in town. He came back, three months before he died, from one of these, and gave me his programme to look at, an analytical programme. He always kept them. I nearly missed this one, he said. I suppose I must have dropped it. Anyhow, I was looking for it under my seat and in my pockets and so on, and my neighbour offered me his. Said, might he give it me? He had no further use for it and he went away just afterwards. I don't know who he was, a stout, clean-shaven man. I should have been sorry to miss it. Of course I could have brought another, but this cost me nothing. At another time he told me that he had been very uncomfortable, both on the way to his hotel and during the night. I piece things together now in thinking it over. Then, not very long after, he was going over these programmes, putting them in order to have them bound up, and in this particular one, which, by the way, I had hardly glanced at, he found quite near the beginning a strip of paper with some very odd writing on it in red and black, most carefully done. It looked to me more like runic letters than anything else. Why, he said, this must belong to my fat neighbour. It looks as if it might be worth returning to him. It may be a copy of something. Evidently someone has taken trouble over it. How can I find his address? We talked it over for a little, and agreed that it wasn't worth advertising about, and that my brother had better look out for the man at the next concert, to which he was going very soon. The paper was lying on the book, and we were both by the fire. It was a cold, windy summer evening. I suppose the door blew open, though I didn't notice it. At any rate, a gust, a warm gust it was, came quite suddenly between us, took the paper and blew it straight into the fire. It was light, thin paper, and flared and went up the chimney in a single ash. Well, I said, you can't give it back now. He said nothing for a minute, then rather crossly. No, I can't. But why you should keep on saying so, I don't know. I remarked that I didn't say it more than once. Not more than four times, you mean, was all he said. I remember all that very clearly without any good reason. And now, come to the point, I don't know if you looked at that book of Carswell's which my unfortunate brother reviewed. It's not likely that you should, but I did, 
both before his death and after it. The first time we made game of it together. It was written in no style at all, split infinitives, and every sort of thing that makes an Oxford gorge rise. Then there was nothing that the man didn't swallow, mixing up classical myths and stories out of the golden legend, with reports of savage customs of today, all very proper, no doubt, if you know how to use them, but he didn't. He seemed to put the golden legend and the golden bough exactly on a par, and to believe both. A pitiable exhibition, in short. Well, after the misfortune I looked over the book again. It was no better than before, but the impression which it left this time on my mind was different. I suspected, as I told you, that Carswell had borne ill-will to my brother, even that he was in some way responsible for what had happened. And now his book seemed to me to be a very sinister performance indeed. One chapter in particular struck me, in which he spoke of casting the runes on people, either for the purpose of gaining their affection, or for getting them out of the way. Perhaps more especially the latter. He spoke of all this in a way that really seemed to me to imply actual knowledge. I've not time to go into the details, but the upshot is that I am pretty sure from information received that the civil man at the concert was Carswell. I suspect, I more than suspect, that the paper was of importance, and I do believe that if my brother had been able to give it back he might have been alive now. Therefore it occurs to me to ask you whether you have anything to put beside what I have told you. By way of answer, Dunning had the episode in the manuscript room at the British Museum to relate. Then he did actually hand you some papers. Have you examined them? No? Because we must, if you'll allow it, look at them at once, and very carefully. They went to the still empty house. Empty for the two servants were not yet able to return to work. Dunning's portfolio of papers was gathering dust on the writing-table. In it were the quires of small-sized scribbling paper, which he used for his transcripts, and from one of these, as he took it up, there slipped and fluttered out into the room with uncanny quickness a strip of thin, light paper. The window was open, but Harrington slammed it too, just in time to intercept the paper which he caught. I thought so, he said. It might be the identical thing that was given to my brother. You'll have to look out, Dunning. This may mean something quite serious for you. A long consultation took place. The paper was narrowly examined. As Harrington had said, the characters on it were more like runes than anything else, but not decipherable by either man, and both hesitated to copy them, for fear, as they confessed, of perpetuating whatever evil purpose they might conceal. So it has remained impossible, if I may anticipate a little, to ascertain what was conveyed in this curious message or commission. Both Dunning and Harrington are firmly convinced that it had the effect of bringing its possessors into very undesirable company, that it must be returned to the source whence it came, they were agreed, and further, that the only safe and certain way was that of personal service, and here contrivance would be necessary, for Dunning was known by sight to Carswell. He must, for one thing, alter his appearance by shaving his beard, but then might not the blow fall first. Harrington thought they could time it. He knew the date of the concert at which the 
black spot had been put on his brother. It was June the 18th. The death had followed on September the 18th. Dunning reminded him that three months had been mentioned on the inscription on the car window. Perhaps, he added with a cheerless laugh, mine may be a bill at three months too. I believe I can fix it by my diary. Yes, April the 23rd was the day at the museum. That brings us to July the 23rd. Now, you know, it becomes extremely important to me to know anything you will tell me about the progress of your brother's trouble, if it is possible for you to speak of it. Of course. Well, the sense of being watched whenever he was alone was the most distressing thing to him. After a time I took to sleeping in his room, and he was the better for that. Still, he talked a great deal in his sleep. What about? Is it wise to dwell on that, at least, before things are straightened out? I think not. But I can tell you this. Two things came for him by post during those weeks, both with a London postmark, and addressed in a commercial hand. One was a woodcut of Buick's, roughly torn out of the page, one which shows a moonlit road and a man walking along it, followed by an awful demon creature. Under it were written the lines out of the ancient mariner, which I suppose the cut illustrates, about one who, having once looked round, walks on and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. The other was a calendar, such as tradesmen often send. My brother paid no attention to this, but I looked at it after his death, and found that everything after September the 18th had been torn out. You may be surprised at his having gone out alone the evening he was killed, but the fact is that during the last ten days or so of his life he had been quite free from the sense of being followed or watched. The end of the consultation was this. Harrington, who knew a neighbour of Carswell's, thought he saw a way of keeping a watch on his movements. It would be Dunning's part to be in readiness to try to cross Carswell's path at any moment, to keep the paper safe and in a place of ready access. They parted. The next weeks were no doubt a severe strain upon Dunning's nerves. The intangible barrier which had seemed to rise about him on the day when he received the paper gradually developed into a brooding blackness that cut him off from the means of escape to which one might have thought he might resort. No one was at hand who was likely to suggest them to him, and he seemed robbed of all initiative. He waited with inexpressible anxiety as May, June, and early July passed on for a mandate from Harrington. But all this time Carswell remained immovable at Lufford. At last, in less than a week before the date he had come to look upon as the end of his earthly activities, came a telegram. Leaves Victoria by boat train Thursday night. Do not miss. I come to you tonight. Harrington. He arrived accordingly, and they concocted plans. The train left Victoria at nine, and its last stop before Dover was Croydon West. Harrington would mark down Carswell at Victoria, and look out for Dunning at Croydon, calling to him if need were by a name agreed upon. Dunning, disguised as far as might be, was to have no label or initials on any hand luggage, and must at all costs have the paper with him. Dunning's suspense, as he waited on the Croydon platform, 
I need not attempt to describe. His sense of danger during the last days had only been sharpened by the fact that the cloud about him had perceptibly been lighter. But relief was an ominous symptom, and if Carswell eluded him now, hope was gone, and there were so many chances of that. The rumour of the journey might be itself a device. The twenty minutes in which he paced the platform and persecuted every porter with inquiries as to the boat train were as bitter as any he had spent. Still the train came, and Harrington was at the window. It was important, of course, that there should be no recognition, so Dunning got in at the farther end of the corridor carriage, and only gradually made his way to the compartment where Harrington and Carswell were. He was pleased on the whole to see that the train was far from full. Carswell was on the alert, but gave no sign of recognition. Dunning took the seat not immediately facing him, and attempted vainly at first, then with increasing command of his faculties, to reckon the possibilities of making the desired transfer. Opposite to Carswell, and next to Dunning, was a heap of Carswell's coats on the seat. It would be of no use to slip the paper into these. He would not be safe, or would not feel so, unless in some way it could be proffered by him and accepted by the other. There was a handbag, open, and with papers in it. Could he manage to conceal this, so that perhaps Carswell might leave the carriage without it, and then find and give it to him? This was the plan that suggested itself. If he could only have counselled with Harrington! But that could not be. The minutes went on. More than once Carswell rose and went out into the corridor. The second time Dunning was on the point of attempting to make the bag fall off the seat, but he caught Harrington's eye and read in it a warning. Carswell, from the corridor, was watching, probably to see if the two men recognised each other. He returned, but was evidently restless, and when he rose the third time, hope dawned, for something did slip off his seat and fall, with hardly a sound, to the floor. Carswell went out once more, and passed out of range of the corridor window. Dunning picked up what had fallen, and saw that the key was in his hands, in the form of one of Cook's ticket-cases, with tickets in it. These cases have a pocket in the cover, and within very few seconds the paper of which we have heard was in the pocket of this one. To make the operation more secure, Harrington stood in the doorway of the compartment, and fiddled with the blind. It was done, and done at the right time, for the train was now slowing down towards Dover. In a moment more Carswell re-entered the compartment. As he did so, Dunning, managing, he knew not how, to suppress the tremble in his voice, handed him the ticket-case, saying, "'May I give you this, sir? I believe it is yours.' After a brief glance at the ticket inside, Carswell uttered the hoped-for response. "'Yes, it is. Much obliged to you, sir.' And he placed it in his breast-pocket. Even in the few moments that remained, moments of tense anxiety, for they knew not to what a premature finding of the paper might lead. Both men noticed that the carriage seemed to darken about them, and to grow warmer, that Carswell was fidgety and oppressed, that he drew the heap of loose coats near to him, and cast it back as if it repelled him, and that he then sat upright and glanced anxiously at both. They, with sickening anxiety, busied themselves in collecting their belongings, 
but they both thought that Carswell was on the point of speaking when the train stopped at Dover Town. It was natural that in the short space between town and pier they should both go into the corridor. At the pier they got out, but so empty was the train that they were forced to linger on the platform until Carswell should have passed ahead of them with his porter on the way to the boat, and only then was it safe for them to exchange a pressure of the hand and a word of concentrated congratulation. The effect upon Dunning was to make him almost faint. Harrington made him lean up against the wall, while he himself went forward a few yards within sight of the gangway to the boat, at which Carswell had now arrived. The man at the head of it examined his ticket, and laden with coats he passed down into the boat. Suddenly the official called after him, "'You, sir, beg pardon, did the other gentleman show his ticket?' "'What the devil do you mean by the other gentleman?' Carswell's snarling voice called back from the deck. The man bent over and looked at him. "'The devil? Well, I don't know, I'm sure,' Harrington heard him say to himself, and then aloud, "'My mistake, sir. Must have been your rugs. Ask your pardon.' And then to a subordinate near him, "'Had he got a dog with him, or what? Funny thing. I could have swore he wasn't alone. Well, whatever it was, they'll have to see to it aboard. She's off now.' Another week we shall be getting the holiday customers. In five minutes more there was nothing but the lessening lights of the boat, the long line of the Dover lamps, the night breeze, and the moon. Long and long the two sat in their room at the Lord Warden. In spite of the removal of their greatest anxiety, they were oppressed with a doubt, not of the lightest. Had they been justified, in sending a man to his death, as they believed they had. Ought they not to warn him, at least? No, said Harrington. If he is the murderer, I thank him, we have done no more than is just. Still, if you think it better, but how and where can you warn him? He was booked to Abbeville only, said Dunning. I saw that. If I wired to the hotels there in Joanne's guide, examine your ticket-case, Dunning, I should feel happier. This is the twenty-first. He will have a day, but I am afraid that he has gone into the dark. So telegrams were left at the hotel office. It is not clear whether these reached their destination, or whether, if they did, they were understood. All that is known is that on the afternoon of the twenty-third, an English traveller examining the front of St. Wolfram's Church at Abbeville, then under extensive repair, was struck on the head and instantly killed by a stone falling from the scaffold erected round the northwestern tower, there being, as was clearly proved, no workman on the scaffold at that moment, and the traveller's papers identified him as Mr. Carswell. Only one detail shall be added. At Carswell's sale, a set of Buick, sold with all faults, was acquired by Harrington. The page with the woodcut of the traveller and the demon, was, as he had expected, mutilated. Also, after a judicious interval, Harrington repeated to Dunning something of what he had heard his brother say in his sleep, but it was not long before Dunning stopped him. End of Casting the Runes From Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James
truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. George Washington, during his entire two terms as President of the United States, refused to shake hands. He always bowed in the belief that a handshake was beneath the dignity of a president. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the most considerate uncle. Richard Dawson of Bradley, England, was probably the most considerate uncle in history. He was a very large man, so on his deathbed, he worried that his 300-pound body would be an inconvenience to his frail nephew after he died. So, to spare his nephew the trouble, Dawson walked out to the garden where he dug his own grave. After he had finished digging, he laid down in the grave and he died. Believe it or not. Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 5 Thrown Away Statement of Kieran Woodward regarding items recovered from the refuse of 93 Lancaster Road, Walthamstow. Original statement given February 23, 2009. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. I work as a bin man for Waltham Forest Council. It's not a bad job, really, as long as you can handle the smell in the early mornings. Not to mention that when winter really gets going, it can be pretty unpleasant. I've had to chip ice off more than a few bins in my time just to get them open. Still, the pay's pretty decent. At least it is once you throw in the overtime and the bonuses, and once you've done the rounds, you're usually off for the day, so you're working fewer hours than your average office monkey. It's just that those hours tend to be a lot less pleasant than anything you're likely to find staring at some accounting spreadsheet. But I didn't come here to talk about the benefits and problems of working in waste collection, at least, I guess I came to talk about one very specific problem that I encountered last year when doing the rubbish collection for 93 Lancaster Road. Now, you encounter weird things in this job all the time. People have an odd mental block, this idea that as soon as they put something in the bin, it's gone. It's officially been made rubbish and no one will ever see it again. The fact that someone had to take it from your bin to the landfill or the recycling centre doesn't really enter their heads and nobody ever seems to realise that up to a dozen people might be seeing what you throw away before it finally disappears forever. But no, as far as the rest of the world thinks about it, once it's been thrown away, it's gone, far beyond all human understanding. This leaves those of us who work in waste collection seeing kind of a strange side to humanity, but an honest one at that. 
If you're a bit of a boozer, there's every chance that your bin men know how much you drink better than you do, because we empty all the bottles. And yes, we do remember. We also get quite judgmental at times, although not about the things you might think. You can throw away a mountain of grotesque porn, and as long as you've tied it into neat bundles, we're fine with it. But if you throw away cat litter without properly bagging that, you'd better believe that you've earned the hatred of every bin man that ever slung a sack. Still, I'm getting off topic. Point is, the bag of doll's heads didn't bother me. I mean, it was freaky, don't get me wrong. Hundreds of small plastic heads staring out of the refuse sack at me. But aside from a slight rip on the side of the black bag, they were thrown away very neatly, and were easy enough to toss into the truck. The bag was full of them, mind. It was placed next to the green recycling bin, and at first I thought it was just a single doll with its head positioned near the tear. But when I tossed the bag into the truck, the rip split, spilling forth a whole bunch of the things. At a guess, I'd say there were over a hundred in there. They were made of hard, rigid plastic with that infant doll face that you seem to find on every toy like that. Several of them had different hair moulded or painted on, so it was clear that they weren't simply from a hundred or so of the same doll. Someone had spent time acquiring a whole variety of different dolls, which they then beheaded and stuffed into the sack. They were very battered, but not with age. It looked as though someone had taken the brand new heads and dragged them over rough concrete, though I couldn't say whether they'd have been attached to the rest of the doll at the time. It was creepy, sure, but the sun was shining and there were four of us working the truck that day, so it was easy enough to laugh it off. It was the old crew, me, David Attire, Matthew Wilkinson and Alan Parfit, who drives, drove, the truck. What it did do, though, was mark out 93 Lancaster Road in our minds as the dollhouse, since we spent the rest of the day making off-colour jokes about the sort of people who must live there. I said before that your bin man knows a lot about you, now, that's probably not actually true for most people. We service hundreds of homes each day, and who can keep track of that many people? Who wants to? You do have houses, though, that you learn to keep an eye on. The sort of places that throw out strange or sometimes even dangerous things. Like I said, we probably know if you're an alcoholic, but it's not because we watch you obsessively or care about your health. It's because smashed bottles and broken glass are dangerous and you learn to keep an eye out around houses where you're likely to find them. I read once that waste collection is the second most dangerous profession in England. Not sure I believe it. They said the first was farming. But you do see your fair share of injuries, so you learn to keep your eyes peeled and mark out in your mind which houses you want to stay wary of. Now, after that, the dollhouse became one of those houses for our crew. Not so much for any known danger, but when someone throws out a bin full of weird stuff like that, you never know what else they might decide to toss. Also, Alan, well, he had kind of a twisted sense of humour, and he loved the doll heads. When we told him, he insisted on stopping the truck and getting out to have a look. So after that, he always made a point to ask us to keep an eye on 93. And we did. The next couple of weeks, when we pulled up to 93, I took an extra second or two just to check for anything strange in the bins, but nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Alan especially was disappointed by this, but it was hardly something to dwell on, so we put it out of our minds and pressed on with the day's work. This continued for what must have been a few months, and the whole doll's head incident hadn't come up, except for a few interesting conversations at the recycling plant where, to be honest, I don't think anyone believed us, or if they did they'd immediately try to top it with their own story of bizarre finds. 
It was the start of spring when we got the next strange bag from 93 Lancaster Road. Again, it was an unmarked black refuse bag placed next to the recycling bin. As soon as I saw it, I knew it was another one. The shape of it was too regular to be full of the normal assortment of rubbish. As I picked it up, I realised it was far too light as well. It seemed to weigh almost nothing, but was bulging with what sounded like a whole load of paper inside. I gave the others a look, and told them I thought we had another odd bag. David and Matt started discussing whether we should open it, as this one didn't seem to have a rip like the last one. We were still talking it over when Alan came back to see what was taking us so long. He knew where we were, and you could see it in his eyes that he'd been hoping this was the reason for the delay. One look at his face, and I knew that if we didn't open it, he would. I looked up towards the house, checking for anyone watching, but 93 was right near the start of our route, so it was still very early in the morning and all the lights were off. There was no sign of movement, so, very carefully, I opened the bag. Inside was paper, as I expected. It seemed to be a single strip of thick white writing paper, maybe an inch wide. The paper was long, so long that it seemed like the whole bag was filled solely with this one piece of it, wrapped and curled and crumpled to fit inside. There was writing on it, in another language, I think Latin. Matt, who was raised Catholic and never shut up about it, said he recognised it and claimed that it was the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, written over and over again. He seemed pretty rattled about it, especially at the fact that at certain points the edges of the paper seemed to be slightly singed, as though it had been passed over a candle or a lighter. He even seemed hesitant about throwing it in with the rest of the garbage, but we didn't have anything else we could actually do with it. So into the truck it went. Alan was smiling the rest of the shift, and there was a delight there that, quite frankly, had started to unsettle me a bit. As far as I was concerned, this was a bit of a letdown after the doll's heads, but the way the others had reacted put me a bit on edge. The third bag was the one that really changed things. It was a fortnight after the one with the prayer paper in it. As we approached 93, I noticed there was another bag sitting next to the bin. The others clearly noticed as well, as everyone went very quiet. The first two had been the only times there had been rubbish bags at the house that weren't in the actual bin itself, so there was little doubt in my mind that this was going to be more creepy trash. Alan turned the engine off as we pulled level with the house and got out. Whatever was in this one, he was going to see it. The bag bulged, just like the others, but had a bumpy sort of look to its surface. We all stared at it for several seconds before I realised that the others were waiting for me to pick it up. I'd picked up the others and apparently this was how it was done now. It almost felt like a ritual. I walked over and lifted it off the ground. It was heavier than the last one, and as it moved it made a sound like shifting sand or gravel, or maybe more of a rattle. I started to carry it towards my colleagues to open it, when I accidentally caught the bottom of it on the low brick wall at the end of the small front garden. Already filled almost to bursting, the bag tore open easily. From the newly ripped hole poured teeth. Hundreds, thousands of teeth. They came streaming down in a waterfall of white, cream and yellow, bouncing as they hit the pavement and gradually forming a pile of astounding size. When the bag was finally empty, we just stood there in silence, staring at the mountain of teeth that now lay on the ground before us. They looked like human teeth to me, but 
I wasn't exactly an expert and I sure as hell didn't want to check closer. Finally, David broke the silence by vomiting loudly into a nearby drain and I backed away from the grisly mound. Even Alan looked shaken by this. I suppose some things are disconcerting however grim your interests. We phoned the police. That's something else that people always forget about garbage men. We're perfectly capable of calling the police if we see obviously illegal stuff being thrown away. Usually we don't bother if it's just something small, but this... For this, we phoned the police. They came in surprisingly good time, and I reckon they were even more freaked out than we were. One of them took our statements while the other went up to the house itself to check on the occupants and see if they knew anything about the teeth. As the officer knocked on the door, we all strained to get a better look at what greeted her. There was no way after all this we were going to pass up a chance to actually get a look at the residence of 93 Lancaster Road. Eventually the door opened, and an old woman stood there, blinking in the early morning sunlight and clearly slightly alarmed to see the police. Needless to say, the old lady and her husband had no idea about any of the weird bags that had been appearing in their rubbish, and seemed properly upset when they were given the details. The police spent a good ten minutes doing their best to collect up all the teeth, and we were sent on our way. I have no idea what, if anything, the investigation turned up. Certainly I was never contacted by them again, and if any of the rest were, they didn't mention it. And for a while that was it. We kept an eye out whenever we were headed down Lancaster Road, but didn't encounter any further ominous garbage bags. I thought maybe the involvement of the police had scared off whoever was leaving them. Maybe the police had caught the culprit and just hadn't told us. I did start to notice, though, that Alan wasn't doing well. He was often late to his shift, and when he finally got there he'd be exhausted and grumpy, snapping at everyone and rudely brushing off anyone asking about his health or how he was doing. He seemed even worse whenever we approached the end of Lancaster Road, sometimes speeding up the truck slightly so that we had to run to keep up. Eventually, after I tripped over the curb while hurrying and twisted my ankle, I confronted him, told me that whatever was going on with him he could talk about it or get over it, but that he clearly needed to deal with something. He got very quiet, and said he'd been watching number 93 some nights. Said he wanted to see whoever was dropping this stuff off, that he had to know. I don't know what I expected. Trouble at home, maybe, or depression, but this took me by surprise. I told him it was a really bad idea, that if the police were still investigating, they were more than likely to pick him up as the culprit, and even if they didn't, the old couple at 93 could just as easily get him arrested for harassment or stalking. Alan nodded along and agreed with me as I spoke, but I could see he wasn't listening. He just said again that he needed to know, told me he'd be careful, as though that was meant to reassure me. It didn't, but I could see I wasn't going to talk him out of it, and we ended in an uncomfortable silence. What I didn't say is that I'd almost done the same thing myself once or twice. There was something about this beyond anything else I'd encountered that... I don't know. It drew me in almost as much as it disgusted me. Almost. But not enough to do anything. And if I needed any further convincing that leaving it alone was the right decision, I only needed to look at Alan. As time went on, the bags under his eyes deepened, and I'd watch him down half a dozen energy drinks over the course of a morning just to get through his shift. I could have said something to our manager, but even then Alan was still my friend, and I didn't want to be the one to get him in any sort of trouble. Eventually, though, it came to a head anyway. 
Alan fell asleep at the wheel of the truck and drove it into a parked car. No one was hurt and the truck was going too slowly to do any real damage, but at that point it was enough to get him fired. We were sad to see him go, but to be honest, by the end of it he'd become quite unpleasant to be around and no one shed any real tears over it. We got a new member of our crew, a kid named Guy Wardman, and life continued in relative peace. For a while, anyway. Then, on the 8th of August last year, at nine minutes past two in the morning, I was woken up by a text message from Alan. It said, found him. I texted him back immediately. What had he found? Was it whoever was leaving the bags? Had he brought another one? No response. I texted Alan again to ask if he was okay. I sent that text a lot of times, but never heard back. I tried phoning him, but nobody answered. As the minutes stretched to hours, the worry that had been growing in my gut settled into a grim certainty, and I knew that Alan was gone. I also knew that I had to go to 93 Lancaster Road and see for myself. I got my coat and headed out into the night. I walked slowly with a kind of reluctance, so the sky was starting to get light by the time I arrived. I knew what I'd find when I got there, and I was right. There was no sign of Alan, or of whoever he might have seen. There was, however, a new rubbish bag sitting there in its usual place. It was full, and this time the top of it had been tied off with a dark green ribbon, arranged in a bow like an old-fashioned Christmas present. It bulged, in much the same way as the last one. I picked up the bag, which turned out to be quite light, and I took off the bow. Opening it, I saw shifting white, and for a second I was sure it was more teeth. Looking closer, though, I saw the truth. Packing peanuts. Polystyrene packing peanuts, enough to fill the bag to capacity. I almost felt relieved, until I realised there was something else in there. Something making it heavier than a bag of polystyrene should be. I closed my eyes and reached in, expecting to find something horrible inside. My hand closed instead around cold metal. I drew out a fist-sized lump of... I think it must have been copper or bronze. It had been roughly carved into the shape of a heart, but like a real heart, not like a Valentine's one. It was cold to the touch, like it had just come out of a freezer, and it almost stuck to my skin. Engraved on the side was the name Alan Parfit, the letters carved in with machine-like precision. That was the last sign of Alan I ever found. As far as I'm aware, he's never been seen since. I gave the lump of metal to a friend of mine who works the medical waste run and owes me a favour. I asked him to throw it in with the shipment, as the medical incinerators burn hotter than any I have access to, and I figured that was my best shot at getting rid of it properly. I still work the Lancaster Road route, but since then there haven't been any more weird bags turning up at 93. Mostly I've just tried to forget about it. Statement ends. It's nice to have a statement where most of the particulars are easily verifiable. It comes with shorter supporting statements from David Attire and Matthew Wilkinson confirming the contents of the first three bags, as well as the details of Alan Parfitt's behaviour prior to his termination from the employment of local government. 
in an uncharacteristic example of actually dealing with modern technology, my predecessor had the good sense to make a copy of the final text conversation between Alan Parfitt and Mr. Woodward. I had Martin conduct a follow-up interview with Mr. Woodward last week, but it was unenlightening. Apparently there have been no further bags at number 93, and in the intervening years he has largely discounted many of the stranger aspects of his experience. I wasn't expecting much, as time generally makes people inclined to forget what they would rather not believe. But at least it got Martin out of the Institute for an afternoon, which is always a welcome relief. Sasha had more luck following up with the old police reports. Alan Parfitt was reported as a missing person by his brother Michael on the 20th of August 2009, and his location remains unknown. The bag of teeth is also corroborated by the police reports of police constables Suresh and Altman, though they can provide no further details as they never made an arrest or even located any suspects. The medical report on the teeth themselves does give one puzzling detail. The teeth were confirmed to be human, but more than that, as far as the examiner was able to determine, they were all in different stages of decay and didn't match any available dental records, but all 2,780 of them were the exact same tooth. End recording. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. presents The Strange Dr. Weird. Good evening. Come in, won't you? You seem a bit nervous. Perhaps it would calm you a little if I were to read to you from the secret journal of Professor Drake. It's a fascinating tale. I call it Journey into the Unknown. There are some extremely interesting entries in Professor Drake's journal, particularly those beginning with the entry made October 1st, which reads, Today my son Paul has reached the final stages in the preparation of his serum number 17. After two years of intensive work and 16 failures, he believes that he's at last succeeded. But just think of it, Paul. Before you took the serum, you could only lift 200 pounds. 
But now you can lift 400. Why, your strength has been doubled. Yes. With the added strength my serum will give him, man will be able to resist diseases that he succumbs to now. His lifespan will be lengthened by 20 or 30 years. Perhaps he... No, I'll answer it, Paul. Oh, it's you, Julia. Yes, I want to, Paul. Oh, you can't, Julia. He's right in the midst of an experiment. But I haven't seen and heard from him in two weeks. After all, I am his fiancé. But, Julia, he can't be disturbed. He's in the... Oh, hello, darling. Why, Julia. Oh, oh God, you... You squeeze me so tightly. I'm... I'm sorry, dear. I'm afraid I don't know my own strength. Oh, that's all right. Paul, what kind of experiment is it you're working on? Darling, I can't reveal anything yet. Not even to you. But when my work is done, you'll be the first one to hear about it. Here's the entry for October 7th. Theorem number 17 is effective beyond Paul's wildest hope. Oh, think of it, Paul. Today you were able to lick up 600 pounds with ease. Yes. Why, why are you staring at yourself in the mirror so? Father, do you notice any change? In the shape of my head? Why, no, Paul. And I'd certainly notice a change if there were one. Yes, of course. It must be just my imagination. On October 8th, he wrote, This morning when I entered the laboratory, I found Paul fast asleep at his desk. I woke him. Paul, wake up. Huh? You should have gone to bed when I... Paul... No, it can't be. What is it, Father? What's wrong? Your face. My face? Quick, hand me that mirror. Here. Here. No. No. I was right. Look at me, Father. My face has become broad. The features flattened. The cheekbones prominent. And notice how thick the hair on my body has become. I've reverted to the Neanderthal man. The Neanderthal man? But, Paul, he existed 50,000 years ago. Yes, I know. At the swift pace I'm going backwards, it may only be a week, a few days, before I revert to an ape completely. Paul, what are we going to do? There's only one way I can save myself. I must find a neutralizer that will stop the serum from changing me into an ape before it's too late. In his entry for October 10th, he wrote... Paul has been working 48 hours without rest. And so far, has been unsuccessful in finding a neutralizer. This morning, when I entered the laboratory, I could see that he is looking more and more like an ape every day. Paul, you just can't go on this way. You've got to get some rest. I can't rest. Every minute is precious. I... I lost four hours last night. You lost four hours? I, I don't understand. While I was working here last night... I glanced at the clock to find it was just three o'clock. Then, the next thing I remember was finding myself in the hall. And the clock was just striking seven. I can't remember those four hours. Where I was, what I was doing. Those four hours, I lost my ability to think as a man. My mind became that of an ape. During those four hours, I... I actually was an ape. Return to the story of the terrible danger threatening this young scientist in just a moment. Meanwhile, for a breathing spell, a word from Dr. Weird. Yes, yes, a breathing spell. 
something pleasant to think upon. And what subject could be more appropriate at this fall season than hats? I'm sure my young friend here can tell you something most helpful about Adam hats. Thank you, Doctor. Gentlemen, Adam, hatter to famous Americans for many years, has created a brand new value in fine headgear for men. It's the Adam 5. Nowhere in America can you find a better buy. Try on an Adam 5. See for yourself. Notice the perfect fit, the up-to-the-minute fashion, the quality feel of the lustrous fine fur felt. Every Adam 5 is fine fur felt. Hand-blocked by master craftsmen. And you have a great variety of correct styles from which to choose. Try on an Adam 5 tomorrow. You'll look right and feel right in one. Proud to be seen wearing one anywhere. For other Adam hats, choose from prices ranging from $3.45 to $10. If it bears the Adam crest of quality inside the crown, you can be sure of honest value. Now, let's return to Dr. Weird and his tale, Journey into the Unknown. The entry for October 11th in Professor Drake's journal reads as follows. The changes in Paul's appearance continue. His body is now completely covered with a heavy growth of hair, and his skin is rapidly turning to a deep brown and becoming coarse and callous. His arms have lengthened almost five inches, and he walks more and more in a stooped manner with hands almost touching the floor. As yet, no change in voice has been noted. On October 12th, he wrote, Last night, Paul suddenly dropped a test tube and snarled at me. In that moment, he was completely an ape. The entry for October 13th reads, Last night, when I came into the laboratory, I found a window open and Paul gone. I immediately rushed out into the night to find him. A few blocks away on the university campus, I saw police gathered around the body of a girl who had just been murdered. Every bone in her body had been crushed. A few hours later, Paul returned to this house. He could recall nothing of what had happened, where he'd been. To prevent another accident from occurring, today I had steel bars placed over Paul's bedroom window. Oh, it's you, Julia. Good evening, Mr. Drake. I want to see Paul. No, I'm sorry, Julia, but Paul can't be disturbed. He's asleep in his room. You've been putting me off for days, but this time I am going to see him. Hey, Julia, come back. You can't see him now. Oh, is it? Julia, you shouldn't... Wait. Huh? He isn't here. This room's empty. He isn't here. What were those bars put over Paul's windows? It's all part of the experiment, Julia. Oh, this window over here though someone had bent the bars apart to escape. But no man could have bent bars as strong as these. That ape. What ape, Julia? The one that the police believe crushed that poor girl to death last night. No, really, Julia. Do you think you for a moment that... You were using an ape in the experiment. This room was his cage. And now he's escaped. Julia, you're wrong, I assure you. He's out looking for that ape, isn't he? And he ate the killer. Please, Julia. I'm going to get the police. <laughs> Ape that murdered Betty Ryan late last night. All residents are warned to get off 
heard what that announcer said. I killed that girl tonight, didn't I? And the one last night, too. I'm a murderer. Paul, listen to me. The police are looking everywhere for you. We haven't a moment to lose. The neutralizer we were working on last night. It should be ready by now, shouldn't it? Yes. And this time, I'm certain it will work. You must take an injection before it's too late and you're about forever, Johnny. Open up in there! The police! Quick, Father. The neutralizer before it's too late. I have to fill this hypodermic, Paul, before I can give you the injection. All right, you men. Break the door down. Hurry, Father, hurry. I am. It's too late! Hey, there he goes, man, out the window. Oh, oh, come back! Mike, flash a warning to every patrol car. Issue Tommy guns to all the men. The orders are, shoot to kill! All right, men, spread out. We've got the eighth corner now. Please, Chief, you've got to listen to me. If you'll only let me inject this neutralizer into him, then there won't be any need for all oh, this. don't listen to him, Chief. That ape's a killer. Yeah, we're going to put an end to that ape once and for all. Oh, no, you can't. You don't understand. It isn't an ape. It's my son, Professor Drake. Your son. I know an ape when I see one. Yes, I know, but it's my son changed into an ape. This neutralizer will bring him back to you normal. You crazy. Okay, Mike, let him have it. No, 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 I won't let you. I'm coming, Paul. I'm coming. Hey, come back. Come back, you hear? Hold your fire, Mike. Here I am, Paul. Oh, it's hey, father. I have the neutralizer. Paul, I have the injection. Here, give me your arm. No! 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 It was a great pity about poor Professor Drake, wasn't it? He was so young. What am I going to do with his journal? I thought I might carry on his experiments. But I would need someone to assist me as a sort of uh, human guinea pig. So perhaps you would like to volunteer. Oh, you have to go. Too bad. Perhaps you'll drop in on me again soon. I'm always home. Just look for the house on the other side of the cemetery. The house of Dr. Weird. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. Maggie Bogey of Colensburg, Scotland, lived to the age of 100 years and four months, and she slept every night of her life in the same bed, believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the woman who was killed by bashfulness. In this era of women who are anything but bashful around men, it would be hard to convince anyone that there was once a woman who died of bashfulness. From childhood, Teresa St. John of Rodet, France, had become violently ill unless she turned away whenever she was addressed. Her shyness was so severe that she dropped dead when she found herself face to face with a man for the first time in 80 years, believe it or not.
Good evening, dear listeners. listeners. Oh, oh. I should not hear myself. myself. There you go. Uh, good evening, dear listeners. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your patience as I worked hard to get home tonight. I am home, in case you're wondering. Safe and sound. And so, yeah. Um, still kind of... I, I think next time we'll just do, like, a pre actual pre-record instead of just, like half the show. I think it'll be a lot more, um, seamless. And I think we can do without the music. So, uh, yeah, let's just axe that. That was supposed to fade out. One second. Hold on one second. Why are you not fading out? Let's see. Okay, so clearly something is wrong with my box program. Uh, sorry about that. Because um, I don't know what's going on. But anyway, uh, so yeah, M.R. James is one of Britain's more uh, famous ghost story. Um, let me see here. Yeah, it's not fading in or out. Hmm. Well, there's your problem. Uh, he's one of Britain's more famous ghost story authors. Um... And he hails from uh, the Victorian times when it was tradition that you told ghost stories on Christmas. Um, he was something of a contemporary of um, Charles Dickens, although I think he came along later. Uh, or he, James came along later. Anyway, let's try this one more time. There we go. Hey. And yet it is still not fading out. So, yeah, we're going to have to work on that. Anywho, uh, so yeah, uh, Casting the Runes was written in uh, the early 1900s. Let's see here. Okay, and uh, so yeah. Anyway, we are going to get to our old-time radio selection tonight, which is um, the uh, November 19th, 1947 broadcast of um, Escape, which was a radio adaptation of uh, Casting the Runes. 
Oh, wait, I also forgot to talk about my Dungeons & Dragons game. Silly me. Uh, I mean, there wasn't much that happened. They continued their, their journey to Canemore, and they arrived after battling a group of six harpies. And again, I'm a first-time DM. I use as many tools as I can to make things as easy as possible for me. One of the tools I use is the tables that are in the DM's, you know, the, the manual. The DMG, the Dungeon Master's Guide. So, there you have it. Um, and so, Harpies came up. And it's the same thing how I rolled up, rolled, you know, did a giant. I rolled, encountered a stone giant. That, you know, so, will that change as I get more experience? Probably. You know, why not? But, uh, for now, like I said, I take, anyway. Uh, they arrived in Canemore. They inquired about their new client, the mysterious H. Minerva. And they eventually arrived at the shop owned by one Dirk Stormbeard, a dwarven smith, and were immediately nearly not bowled over by a, a half-elf boy about their age who tells them they need to get away fast because of his new experiment. And so that is how they met H. Minerva, or Hallie Minerva. And um, they also met his steel defender Barnabas 4.0 affectionately known as Barney um, and I picked Barnabas because it's a reference to my favorite my all, probably one of my all time favorite games and that is Final Fantasy 4 Barnabas was a boss fight in that and of course 4.0 comes from Final Fantasy 4 the game he was in so there you have it and that's about all that happened. They'll find out what he wants with them later, or next session, but uh, that's as far as we got. And for some reason, it seems that my microphone is a little weak. We may have to, to tweak that. Well, that's really weak. There we go. Uh, so there we have it. Anyway, we're going to get to the November 19th, 1947 broadcast of Escape, radio adaption, adaptation of Casting the Runes by M.R. James. We'll get to that in just a second. Anyway, I hope everyone's enjoying the show. We will run a little long tonight because um, after... Um, we get done with this, which will be by half an hour. We still have our pod people segment to get to. Always fun. Uh, and I've picked a good one. Very fa heavy fantasy one uh, tonight. But anyway, we'll be right back after casting the runes from Escape.
day at the office? Backache from bending over a hot stove all day? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. It is midnight, and you are alone. Suddenly the room is plunged into darkness. You sit frozen with terror because something is there behind you. Something you feared would come. Something from which you must escape. Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to London and a world made strange and terrifying by the workings of an ancient barbaric curse. As Montague R. James tells it in his weird story, Casting the Runes. My name is Edward Dunning. I'm a scientist. I'm used to dealing with facts, not fairy tales. I'm regarded as Britain's leading authority on medieval life. And as such, I've studied much of the ancient fears and barbaric superstitions of those times. I should have been the first to scoff at any suggestion that the ancient powers of evil, the black magic of Teutonic days, could be believed and practiced in the 20th century. A few weeks ago, I should have laughed had you told me that a curse, a hex, could kill a man. Today, I cannot laugh. It has happened to a man I know of. And now, it's happening to me. My first presentment of danger came on that day a few weeks ago when I dropped in to see Alfred Smythe. Secretary of the National Science Association and found him in a state of irritation. Last it all, Downing, I almost wish you hadn't been so brutally honest in your report on that Carswell paper. Why? What's the trouble? Oh, he's such a frightful fellow. He's raising a terrible row. You mean Carswell himself? Yes, it's bad enough a vicious charlatan like that calling himself a scientist. But now he's taking all his vindictiveness out on me. <laughs> Sorry, old chap. It's really me he'd like to get at. As a matter of fact, that's just what his last letter was about. He wants to know what supposed authority wrote the report rejecting his paper. You didn't give him my name. Heavens, no. As a matter of fact, Dunning, I haven't and I won't. And for a very special reason. Call it silly, call it crazy, call it what you will. I have an uncanny feeling about that man, Carswell. Hmm? Why? Do you know anything about him? Nothing. I've never seen him. I only know that he wrote a paper called The Truth of Alchemy. It was hopeless. Precisely. And why was it hopeless? Well, besides being abominably written, it was supposed to prove that alchemy, black magic, and such rot actually exists. I think the man really believes it. Undoubtedly he does, and that's what I mean. He lives in an isolated old house in Warwickshire. He's rarely seen elsewhere, and in his whole career he's written only two things. This paper... And the history of witchcraft published ten years ago. Yes, of course. I remember now. So that's the man. Yes, and that book was even worse than this paper. The man has a warped mind. 
I'm sure he's tried every unhealthy experiment in alchemy, witchcraft, and black magic. There's no turning to what lengths of vindictiveness a man like that might go. Well, it does sound a bit queer, but... It's not queer, Dunning. Evil. Oh, come. Man has a right to believe what he likes. He has a right to be angry with me. Here I've glibly scoffed at the man's life's work. Well, perhaps I'm being overly suspicious and imaginative, but I think there's more than anger involved here, Edward. Mm -hmm. This may sound fantastic to you, but, well, John Harrington wrote the report condemning that witchcraft book of Carswell's ten years ago. Three months later, Harrington was dead. Hmm. But, Alfred, what's the connection? Harrington died under very peculiar circumstances. He was walking home alone late one night, and suddenly he screamed, broke into a run, lost his hat and stick, and climbed up a tree. A dead branch gave way. He fell and broke his neck. No one's ever been able to explain why it happened. Come now, Albert. Jolly, you're not suggesting... Oh, I don't this... know what I'm suggesting. I only know that after he reviewed Carswell's book, John Harrington didn't have a moment's peace. Now you've written an unfavorable review of his, this paper. If I were you, I should keep that fact well hidden. <laughs> oh, Alfred. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yes, I laughed at Alfred Smart's fears. How could I have known then that I was to feel the same terror, the same agonized fear which gripped the heart of John Harrington as he crouched panting on the branch of a tree for another moment or two of life. While beneath him, the thing came closer and closer. I'd almost forgotten the incident when, a few nights later, I was riding home on a late train. I was half drowsing in my seat, barely keeping awake by looking idly at the car car. But man directly opposite me must have been doing the same. Because suddenly I heard him say, Here now, what can that one be advertising? I followed his eyes to the window beside my head. What I saw brought me bolt upright in my seat. In memory of John Addington, died September 18th, 1937, by falling from a tree, three months were allowed. Blimey, what do you say that means, sir? Well, I... I don't know. But I did know. Smythe had been right. The affair with Carswell was not over, but only begun. I asked the conductor about the cart, but he was as puzzled as I was. He had never seen it before. The card must have been put there expressly for me. That meant that Carswell knew it was I who had reviewed his paper. How had he found out? I got the answer the next day. I was in the select manuscript department of the British Museum doing some research in the quiet, almost deserted room. I'd been working steadily for an hour, oblivious to my surroundings, when suddenly, just at my shoulder, I heard a voice. Edward Dunning, you are allowed three months. I swung around in my seat. There was no one within 20 feet of me. I sat for a moment, shaken, and then I stooped to pick up the papers I had brushed to the floor. I straightened up to find a stout, elderly gentleman standing in front of me. Excuse me, sir. Uh, yes? May I give you this paper? I think it should be yours. Oh, yes, so it is. I thought I had them all. This one seemed to have slid across the floor. 
Thank you very much. Not at all, sir. Good afternoon. He walked slowly away and out of the door. A kindly, stout old gentleman. But there was something about him that made me feel strange. I went over to the attendant. Uh, yes, Mr. Dunning. Uh, did you notice that gentleman I was just speaking to? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, can you tell me his name? Why, that's Mr. Carswell. As a matter of fact, he was asking about you only the other day. Asking about me? Well, he asked who were the great authorities on medieval science. Of course, I told him you were the only one in the country. Oh, I see. Uh, would you like to meet him, Mr. Dunning? I'll see if I uh, can... Uh, no. No, thank you. It was as simple as that. Now Carswell knew. What would be his next move? What was I to expect? I reached home at dusk. And trouble stood on my doorstep in the long face and stooped form of my family doctor. I had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning. I've had to send both your servants to hospital. But what happened? Uh, something like turning poisoning, I should think. It's nothing serious. Well, what could have caused it? Well, that's the rather odd thing. They tell me they bought some shellfish from a hawker and had it for lunch. I've made inquiries, but I can't find that a hawker called at any other house on this street. <laughs> this the next move? If so, it had succeeded. I was alone in the house, and my nervousness increased as darkness closed in and the hours advanced toward midnight. I went to bed, but almost immediately I thought I heard something. My study door opening downstairs. I went out and leaned over the banister. There was nothing moving, nothing visible. There was only a sudden, surprising gust of warm air playing about my legs. I went back into my room and locked the door. Suddenly, the lights went out. No doubt it was only a blown fuse. But the chills were playing up and down my spine. I went over to the bed and reached for my watch under the pillow. I suppose I wanted to find out the time. I don't know why. But fumbling on the pillow, my hand touched something far different from a watch. It was like a mouth with sharp teeth and hair around it, not human at all. I fled from my bedroom and spent a long and miserable night locked in the spare room, my ear to the door. But nothing came. I was not disturbed again. In the morning, I searched the house and found nothing unusual. But the mark of fear must have been stamped on my face, for Smythe noticed it next day. Darling, you look as if you hadn't slept for weeks. Is anything wrong? I... I don't know, Alfred. I... Uh, yes, there is. Carswell knows. How? They told him at the museum. Of course, we should have thought of that. Has anything happened yet? I don't know. It's too fantastic. It's probably my mind, hypnotic suggestion or something, but... Like that man Harrington, I have three months left. Edward. Must have been hearing things. I'm all on edge. I don't know what to think. John Harrington had a brother, Henry. Perhaps I'd better get you in touch with him. He might know more about this man, Carswell. Yes, yes, do it. And quickly. 
Three months is not a lot of time. It was arranged. That night, I found myself walking down the dark street that led from the railway station to the Harrington home. It must have been along this same street that John Harrington had walked that last night. Where he broke and run, it must have been one of these trees bordering the lonely road in which he had spent his last horrible moments. The way was dark, and there was no living soul in sight. And suddenly, complete terror gripped me. Somehow I knew that I was being followed. At first I only felt it, and then I heard it. I walked steadily on for a moment, my stomach like ice. It was getting louder, coming closer. Unconsciously, my step quickened. I could barely control myself. I wanted to scream and run. The thing came closer and closer. I confess, I broke and ran. Ran madly for my life. I was at a little side street. I turned down the doubling back toward the railway station. I thought I would never make it. But finally, bright lights loomed before my eyes, and I think that I never have been so grateful for human companionship. There's no need to run, sir. The I-40 won't be along for another five minutes. I felt very foolish. I couldn't bring myself to walk back down that street to Harrington's. I could only take the train home furtively and call Harrington next morning to beg his forgiveness. He seemed very understanding and asked no questions. Undoubtedly, Smythe had told him something about me. At any rate, he agreed to visit me at a place two nights later. And when he arrived and was made welcome, he began to talk about his brother. Yes, Mr. Dunning. John was in a very bad state for weeks before the accident, uh, if that's what it was. The principal thing seemed to be the notion that he was being followed became an obsession. Yes, I know. I don't think his death was an accident. Then perhaps you can explain it? No. But I have one clue. Your brother reviewed a book very severely not long before he died. Uh, just lately, I happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book. And his name, of course, is Carswell. That's right. But as far as I'm concerned, that does it. Before he died, John was beginning to feel, much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. Why? Well, it doesn't make sense. None of this does. But tell me. My brother liked music. He went to all the concerts in town, and he made a hobby of collecting the programs. One night, about three months before his death, he brought one home and showed it to me. I nearly missed this one, he said. It seems he'd lost his and was hunting for it under his seat. And a neighbor, a rather stout elderly gentleman, offered to give John his. The kind gentleman was Mr. Coswell. Undoubtedly. I started to leave through the program and noticed on the second page some rather curious letters, carefully written there in black and red ink. Neither of us could make much of it, except that the letters seemed to be runic. Runes. Runes, of course. Well, John thought it might be important and debated whether he shouldn't try to return the program to the stout gentleman. But just then the door blew open and a gust of air, a strangely warm air, blew into the room. In a flash, it took the broom and blew it straight into the fire. Yes, your brother was right. He should have returned it. Well, there's nothing to be done there. Well, perhaps not. But do you know what runic letters mean? Well, they're all pre-Druid script, I believe. 
The kind of writing the barbaric tribes used long before the Romans invaded Britain. Yes, that's right. Casting the runes, they used to call it in the old days. Casting the runes. Uh, what do you mean? Well, it was a curse, a, a hex. In primitive England, people thought by casting the runes, that is, handing a person a piece of paper with certain runic letters on it, that uh, you could put that person out of the way, destroy him. It's an old superstition. And the only way to lift the curse was to return the paper to the one who gave it to you, to give it back without his knowing it. I don't believe that kind of nonsense. <laughs> Neither do I. Then what was it that killed John? I don't know. Perhaps his fear of the runes, perhaps brooding about it, becoming neurotic, thinking he saw things and heard things and touched things that weren't there. Perhaps his own mind drove him to death. And what's the difference? Once you're dead? No difference at all. Casting the runes. Oh, it's rubbish. Yes, of course, but... Good heavens. What is it? I just remembered that day at the British Museum. He cast the runes on me. I went swiftly to the writing table, Harrington close behind me. My portfolio was there, full of the scribbled notes I'd been working on that day in the museum. And as I took it in my shaking hands and began leaping desperately through them, one strip of thin, light paper slipped and fluttered toward the open window with uncanny quickness. But Harrington was even quicker and slammed the window shut just in time. Got it? Well, thank heaven. If it were lost or destroyed, like your brother's... Then you wouldn't be able to return it to Mr. Carswell. Yes. Look at it. It's identical with the one John got. I looked at the flimsy paper. The characters, carefully traced in red and black, were runes, all right. That ancient language used by the Aborigines of prehistoric Britain. I couldn't decipher them. But as Harrington and I stood looking into each other's eyes, each of us could read the other's thoughts. Science or not, 20th century or not, this sheet of fool's cap spells death for its possessor. It spells death for you. It must be returned. Yes, I know. It must go back in such a way that it doesn't... that he doesn't know he's received it. That means we can't simply mail it. No, we can't. We must do it personally. That will take doing. Well, he knows you by sight, doesn't he? Yes. You must shave your beard. It will alter your appearance. He might strike any time. I have three months. That's what the warning said. We've got to make good on this, Dunning. I've searched ten years for my brother's murderer. And now he must not escape. I dare not go near Carswell. So Harrington volunteered to keep a watch on him, to let me know when our chance came to return the rooms, if it was ever to come. It was only a night or two after Harrington was there that I arrived home and found the calendar had come in the mail. When I examined it, I found everything after November 19th had been torn out. The next night, I had another envelope of the mail. This time it was a woodcut, an illustration torn out of a book, showing a dark, moonlit road and a man walking on it. And right behind him came a huge, dark shape, some awful demon creature. Under it were written some lines from the ancient mariner. And as I sat alone and read them aloud, 
I felt that now familiar gust of warm air playing about my legs. The man walks on and turns no more his head because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. of my terror, and it was with me always. Walking down the dark street at night, I heard its footsteps behind me. In my lonely house at midnight, it roamed the halls. Like the ancient mariner and John Harrington, I never turned to look. I couldn't. My nerves were going, and I could do nothing but wait. The days, the weeks slipped by, and still Harrington had no plan. I checked off the days on the calendar cars where it sent. Now there were eight days remaining, then six, then three, two, one. It was the evening of the 18th. My last day on earth was to begin at midnight. I was sitting alone in my living room, bathed in perspiration, fighting to keep my nerves in check. Suddenly I felt that warm gust of air. I listened. There were soft footsteps. A shadow seemed to cross the hall door. And then the footsteps blended into a loud bang. No, no, not yet. I still got one day more. Not yet. Then it's me. Oh, oh, oh heaven. Hey. What's the matter, man? What is it? It was you. You were knocking on the door. Your footsteps. Yes, of course. Oh, thank heaven. I, I thought I... I look, man, you've got to pull yourself together. It's tonight we have our chance. What chance? Cars will leave Victoria Station by the boat train tonight at ten. I'll get on with him there. You take the car I brought and drive to Croydon. Get on the train there. And be sure to bring the paper. Yes. Yes, I have it. You've shaved already. Good. Everything depends on his not recognizing you. This Harrington. Suppose he changes his mind. Suppose he doesn't take that trip. My time runs out tomorrow. He'll be there. And you'll do it. You'll do it well. You've got to. I stood on the platform across in my mind in a daze. I thought the train would never come. But it did. I saw Harrington at the window. He stared coolly at me. Of course, there was to be no sign of recognition. I entered the coach and slowly made my way down the aisle to the compartment where Harrington sat. Opposite him, staring full into my face, was Carswell. He looked up as I sat down. His eyes were heavy lidded, his face bland. It was impossible to tell where he knew. The train started. The next stop was Dover at the end of the line. My last chance. It was time to cast the rules. Carswell and I seated face to face, staring into each other's eyes. Harrington off to the side, pulling at his face with twitching fingers. If I could have only had a few whispered moments with him to plan our strategy, but that was impossible. The moments dragged tortuously, no one moved. Then suddenly Carswell leaned forward. I beg your pardon, sir. Haven't we met? Uh, met? Well, I don't think so, sir. Not unless you're in the plumbing business. Plumbing? No. Hard left. 
I hadn't planned it that way. The words, the accent, just seemed to come by themselves. And Coswell sat back, an enigmatic expression on his face. I wished desperately to know what he was thinking. Then suddenly he got up and went out into the corridor. But this is my chance. I was about to slip over to his bags to see if there were a way to secrete the rooms within them. And I caught Harrington's eye and read a warning. Carswell from the corridor was watching, waiting to see if we recognized each other. I muttered a prayer of thanks. I hadn't moved. Carswell came back and took his seat. As he did so, wild, exultant hope surged up in my throat. For something slipped off his seat and dropped noiselessly to the floor. It was his ticket case, and he didn't see it. No cardboard ticket case with a pocket on the cover. If I could just get to it and slip that tiny piece of paper into that pocket. For 15 agonizing minutes, I sat there and stared at it. If only Carswell would go out. But he sat stolidly staring straight ahead. We were coming into the outskirts of Dover, the train slowing down. Suddenly, Harrington stood up, reached up to the rack above Carswell to get his coat and bag. I stared at him blankly for a moment, surprised by his sudden clumsiness. And then I realized what he was up to. The bag, the coat, a briefcase all came tumbling down upon Carl. What the devil? Oh, I say, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. Clumsy fool, you might have injured me. What were you trying to do? Well, it was my only chance. Carswell stood facing anyway. Harrington. I reached down, Never got mind. the ticket case, and with trembling fingers slid the paper into the pocket. He turned sharply to me, and I extended the case toward him. Uh, excuse me, sir. Is this yours? Yes, my ticket case. Where'd you find it? Here on the floor. Must have dropped off when... Yes. I'm much obliged to you, sir. Not at all. Not at all. He looked at me fiercely, his rage at Harrington still twisting his face into a devil's mask. Then he glanced briefly into the ticket case and put it into his pocket. On the railway pier of Dover, Harrington and I followed a few steps behind Carswell. I felt like I might faint. Carswell went straight to the gangway of the boat, and there the purser Excuse stopped me, him. Sir, does your friend have a ticket? My friend? What the devil do you mean? I'm traveling alone. Well, that's funny. I could have sworn there was another gentleman right there beside you. Walking just at your elbow. Well, there isn't. And I suggest you see an oculist. Oh, I, I didn't see. I just felt... Sorry, sir. It must have been your rugs. My mistake. Come on, Danny. Our job's done. I didn't sleep that night. I lay awake and listened. But there were no footsteps. No warm gusts of air. Nothing to disturb me. All day I felt remarkably free. Although this was to have been my last day on earth. But only just now, when Harrington came in, could I really relax. Well, Denning, have you seen the afternoon paper yet? I know. Not yet. Well, here. Look at it. On the second page. There. Abbeville, France. An English traveler examining the front of St. Wolfram's Cathedral today was struck on the head and killed instantly by a stone falling from the scaffolding. A note of mystery was added by the fact that although the cathedral was undergoing repairs, no workman was on the scaffolding at the time of the accident. The traveler was identified by papers found on him as a Mr. Carswell of Warwickshire. Uh, of course, it could have been an accident, 
Yes. Yes, it could have been. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. And tonight brought you Casting the Runes by Montague R. James. Adapted for radio by Irving Ravitch and John Dunkel. With John McIntyre as Edward Dunning, Jan Wolfe as Harrington, and Bill Conrad as Coswell. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fure. Next week... You are trapped in a hidden valley, high in the Andes, walled in by sheer rock precipices. And surrounding you, closing in on you, is a band of blind men who want your eyes. Next week, we escape with H.G. Wells' gripping story, The Country of the Blind. Good night, then, until this same time next week when we again offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And we are back for the final segment of the night. Uh, first of all, um, I know I mentioned it last week. I forgot to share information. We do have a Patreon um, for our... Uh, basically, I'm uniting all my projects under one banner. I'm not going to do like one Patreon for one project, one Patreon for another. I just think that's kind of a waste. So basically, um, going forward... You can find me at www.patreon.com slash studio, as in movie studio, underscore Hebert, as in my last name, H-E-B-E-R-T. So, yeah. Uh, basically, once we start getting um, pledges, we'll do... Uh, is when I'll start doing the um, original content. So, basically, um, to start with, it'll be... Once a month, you'll get, or one month, you'll get um, a bonus Dread Time Stories episode, and then the next month, you'll get um, podcast tutorials. I, I'm more than willing to teach you to pass on what I know. Um, I'm not afraid of competition. So yeah, uh, basically we have four tiers right now uh, for for Dread Time Stories. Uh, three, I'm sorry. Uh, no, four. I can't count. <laughs> Uh, we have interns at one dollar. You know, that's just you want to toss uh, toss uh, some kibble into my bowl. 
Then we have associate producers at $5 per month. And that comes with, uh, you know, again, that's where the exclusive content starts in. Uh, bonus episodes for $5, 10 and $15. Uh, and, of course, producers at 10 and executive producer at um, 15 And basically, uh, 5 10 15 is going to all be the same perks. You're just saying, uh, I'm willing to support him at $10 a month, $5 a month, whatever. But those three tiers all have these same... Um, same perks, which is basically everyone will get an, a thank you message and an on-air shout-out, regardless of how much you pledge, and then starting at $5 and on up, you will get access to exclusive content, which will be the bonus programs. Um, again, they won't include our serials, so they won't include um, the Magnus Archives or the Strange Doctor Weird, and frankly, I can't offer the Magnus Archives if it's behind a paywall because of the Creative Commons... 4.0 license, or is it 3 point? I think it's 3.0. But the point is, I, I can't put those behind the paywall. And, and frankly, I wouldn't. Um, so, um, yeah. Keep keep that in mind. So again, uh, 1, 5, 10, or $15. And 5, 10, $15 gets you access to monthly bonus content. And like I said, once once I get a get my first patron we will start playing that first um that first uh bonus show anyway uh just a reminder about all the fine content you can hear on here on <laughs> that you can hear here on radio for humans of course we have uh this show dread time stories every wednesday night at 7 p.m eastern um tomorrow at uh 7 p.m. Eastern, we also have um, Time for Go to Bed. Kenny and Susan have kind of changed up their format a bit, have all, have gotten rid of a couple things. They, uh, Wormwood Forest is over, and they've also decided to give uh, the Magic Island the... It's a, it, it's Pink Slip. It is no longer being run on that program. Um, but uh, there you have it. Um, and then following that, at uh, around 9 o'clock Eastern, we have From the Bunker. Friday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, we have um, It Came From Cleveland, which will fe feature a new mythical moment by yours, Cruelly. Waka, waka, waka. Um, and then Saturday, we have Paul's Memory Bank at, uh, I believe, 8 p.m. Eastern. Before that, we have From the Bunker. And then, of course, don't forget... Second Chance Sundays, starting at noon Eastern, you get to hear all the programs, all of our original programming. So, uh, it came from Cleveland, Paul's Marybank, Dread Time Stories, Time for Go to Bed. You get to hear them if you missed them over the week. You know, I thought that was a fun, fun idea to run with. So, there you have it. Anyway, we're going to get to our Pod People seg segment for this week. And this week we're going on a hard, dark fantasy turn. Um, basically, um, our pod people segment is, um, damn, Tales from the Echo Wood, um, which I'm really, really enjoying uh, so far. And so we have. Uh, the the trailer, and then a, a 
two, I believe it's two and a half minute sample. Uh, but uh, here we go. Here's the trailer for Tales from the Echo Wood. and oak and iron and thorn stone and ruin and land forlorn last thin chance of vain hope born heed thee now my call waste and want and fallen leaf broken branch and desperate thief famine Fire, grant relief. Heed thee now, my call. Sun and stars and hearth fires cold. Dragons, giants, gods of old. By thy power, make me bold. Heed thee now, my call. Heavens high and Caverns deep, castle, ruin, broken keep, ancient power I now reap. Heed thee now my call. All that was and may yet be, all I know and cannot see. Desperate words now set I free. Heed thee now my call. You, who walk the woods at night, you with vision more than sight, you who may set worlds to right, heed thee now my call. Homestead on the Corner presents Tales of the Echo Wood, a ten-part fantasy miniseries from the creators of The Sheridan Tapes. Sorry about that. That cut off a bit uh, sudden. But yeah, I'm really enjoying it. The voice acting, I, I, pretty much there's only one character in it, and that's Grail, the person who, who you heard. Um, that I, So far, at least. Um, so there you have it. Uh, and then we have the sample, which again, about, uh, oh, jeez. 
I forget how much it is or how long it is. How much? Let me see here. But, uh, yeah, we'll just, uh, get to that right now. Welcome, Traveler. Sorry, I didn't hear you come in. Tend to get a bit lost in my own thoughts back there. Oh, no need to worry about that. I'll clean it up later. Come, sit and have a drink with me. It's been an age since I've had a guest at my inn, and you look like you could do with getting off your feet for a spell. What takes your fancy? Wine? Cider? I've some ale in the back and a pint or two of honeymead, though I've always found it a bit too sweet for my liking. What'll it be? The strong, silent type, hmm? Ah, well, I can talk more than enough for the both of us. Ah, that's better. Nice to take a load off the old wings now and again. Most days, I'm buzzing around this place sunrise to sunset and don't even get a chance to... Oak and Thorn, where are my manners? I haven't even asked your name. Hmm. Most strange. Ah, I see. Clever, that. It's a dangerous thing, giving away your name. Especially to one of the Fey folk. Don't worry... If it makes you feel better, I'll give you mine first. Grail, Sprite of the First Age, Gnarlroot, Ashborn, Starbound, Keeper of the Inn of the Archway. <laughs> and you are. Now, there's no need to get upset. I was only asking for... Oh... So the passage took your voice in trade, then. Well, I'm sorry for that. Normally, the archway exacts a smaller toll. But there is always a price to be paid to leave an old life behind. Don't worry. It will pass in time, if you let it. All things do. And there you go. Uh, yeah, like I said, I'm really enjoying this. Uh, I really enjoy the character of Grail. Uh, a little chipper, but I can I can handle a little senseless optimism. So yeah, that is tales from tales uh, of the Echo Wood, and uh, I highly recommend it. So we're gonna call it a night. We've already gone half an hour over. Wow, time flies when you're having fun. But again, thank you to everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. And uh, next week we're gonna do a story. By another American author, Washington Irving, and it's not the Washington Irving story you think it's going to be, because it is definitely not the tale of the legend of Sleepy Hollow. We're going to be talking about, we're going to be going over the adventure of the German student, which has an amazing twist. Just uh, when you're listening to it, don't lose your head, okay? 
little guillotine humor there. Anyway, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Of course, I am yours cruelly, Adam Hebert, and we will be back uh, next week, same time, same channel, for another exciting and horrific... Where are you? Horrific edition of Dread Time Stories. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great week. Don't forget the other programs here on Radio for Humans. And again, don't forget our Patreon, patreon.com slash studio underscore Hebert, H-E-B-E-R-T. Thank you very much. Have a great week. Bye. Oh, and uh, unpleasant dreams. Oh. And I forgot to say that all incidental music heard on this program is courtesy of TabletopAudio.com Royalty-free music for your Dungeons & Dragons games or horror-themed podcasts. Thank you, TabletopAudio.com.